What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Oh, Glenn, I'm so sorry I'm late. I was just out there training. Where have you been? I was out there training my dog. What took you so long? Well, we were doing this particular scenario Mm -hmm. where we were using a hard dog chomp. Yep. I got that from Canon Dynamics, by the way. From old mate Mark LaPointe? Mark LaPointe, yep. yeah. I got uh, I get a lot of my working dog equipment from him. He really flogs some good stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, mm. absolutely. Canon Dynamics. Yeah. And then my dog was attached to a leash and collar. Where did it, you get that from? I got that from Mindswick Dog Whip. Not the old buff head. I got it from Jason. Oh. <laughs> okay. Mindswick Dog Whip. Mindswick Dog com. And it all went perfectly. Yep. So... I had to reward the dog. I, I'm very interested. Well, aside from the bites on the chomp, mm-hmm. but, you know, for other things, yep. I gave the dog some Bright's Bites. Oh, good call. Yeah, Bright's Bites. You really are a name dropper, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you've got the best of the three. You've got the golden triad right there. Absolutely. Mm. If you want, you know, if you're in North America and you want working dog equipment, yep. Canon Dynamics. Yep. If you're in Australia and you want any kind of dog equipment, Einswick Dog Quip. And if you're going to use dog treats... You're crazy if you're feeding your dog anything other than bright spots. Absolutely. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Hello, everyone. How are you? Good. How are you? Quite well. That's good. Uh, it's just us. Yep. We've had a bunch of interviews in a row, right? Yeah, they've been good too. Yeah. Mm. Got some good feedback as usual, which is nice. It's nice to hear how people resonate with them. Mm -hmm. And of course, because they're different subject matter, it resonates differently with different people. Yeah, you always get that. I mean, look, we're hundred something episodes in. There's a lot of different topics to cover. Some people aren't interested in it at all and some people very much are. Mm. So that's, that's how it goes. Yeah. Well, especially in the last episode- if anybody hasn't listened to it who actually does own their own business, I think it's worth flicking through it just to get what they need to get out of it. I mean, even if you didn't listen to the whole episode, which I'd still encourage you to do so because I think we made a very strong point that a lot of dog trainers who get out into business get into it because they're passionate about dog training, but they have no clue on sales and marketing. Mm. You know, And I think it clearly is something that Matt has really invested strongly in over his career to advise people on the best strategies. And he seems to be constantly updating himself with the newest information as he goes along. Yeah, big time, yeah. Yeah, you know, and even as dog trainers, that's something that we need to be looking into as well. Not overwhelming ourselves, but at least considering something as a bolt-on to what we're already doing. Yeah, he has the same affliction as I do in that it's like there's no such thing as being static. Like if you feel like you're static, you're actually going backwards. Yeah, You constantly always have to be going forwards and Mm. looking for the next thing. You know, I think you and several other people have said this before, what is old is new again. And there's a lot of things, you know, even in the time that I've been doing this, there's a lot of things that are rebadged and polished off and they're presented because it's been such a long time out of the picture that nobody has recognized anymore. And all mm. of a sudden, oh, it's new. 
these people are inventing a new thing and you're thinking, <laughs> oh, I saw this 30 years ago. Yeah. But maybe it's presented better and maybe a little bit more thought and time has gone into it. Yeah, and, been modernised. Yeah, people have engineered it better and it makes more sense when they're actually trying to explain it or show it. And I have seen that before. I've seen evidence of that, especially with defence work in training. You know, mm. there's been older methodologies in defence work and then people have brought it up again. But I think when they've dug it out of the archives – They've actually looked at it and said, okay, well, here it is. How can we improve on the model? Yeah. Which is fantastic. I love it. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Hey, we had a, an interview lined up that uh, with a scheduling problem isn't going to happen. Mm. So we are doing Q&A. You've got some good questions by the looks of it. Yeah. I'm you only hit to... people up late Yeah, uh, late yesterday and uh, already they came flooding in. So thank you to everybody who is uh, throwing the questions out. Yeah. So let's just work through them. Some of them are like I was having a read. There's some really difficult sort of like, there's some more difficult than a- Their subject matters rather than just Q&A yeah. that you could sort of bump in and yeah. you know have a small discussion around. Some of them you, you could probably do a whole episode on them. Yeah. So I actually want to go out of order because there was this one question from Caleb Griffith and it's right down the bottom. So I'm going to start at the bottom, then go back up to the top and we'll just work our way through the ones that we can with the time that we mm. have. But this is something that I think about a lot, right? So Caleb Griffith says, does variable positive punishment work like variable positive reinforcement? Does it make the dog not want to do the undesired behavior more or less when it's not consistently punished? Which I think is a very interesting question. And it's something that I have thought on a lot and I think we've spoken about in the past once or twice, or maybe I spoke about it in a Patreon live maybe. And it was a big topic of discussion at the boot camp I just did, right? Mm. Where I don't believe that there is any such thing as a variable punishment schedule because let me sort of wind that back a little bit. We always talk about at the core of dog training is why does a dog do anything is to better his own situation. Mm -hmm. So if your dog is displaying a behavior that for whatever reason you've decided positive punishment is the path to take, right? So let's not go into whether that's a good thing or not, or whether, you know, it doesn't matter what the behavior is. Maybe you would be better off with a different approach, but imagine for whatever reason, the behavior, imagine it, you know, whatever it is, you're going with positive punishment as an approach. The reason the dog is displaying that behavior is because they get something from it, mm. right? They are reinforced in one way or another. Mm. Now, whether it's negative reinforcement, if it's say it's aggression and the dog is pushing another dog away, right? Creating distance or whether it's counter surfing and they just like jumping on the counter to for the, the chance of uh, you know, reinforcement that's up there. They're eating off the counter, whatever, yep. right? doesn't matter. Counter surfing. <laughs> yeah, the term counter surfing. Yeah, I've heard it before, but it still makes me giggle. Yeah. Mm. So the reason your dog is doing any one of those things is because it's it is being reinforced yeah, in beneficial. one way or another. Mm. And if you decide to punish it, what you are doing is creating a, a, a positive punishment that is of a value higher than the, the reinforcer value, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine that you are using, say, an electric collar, right, just as an example. And the collar is capable of zero to 100 and you stim that dog at level two and the dog doesn't change its behavior and still counter surfs, mm. right? So what you would say then is that the value of the pressure that you are assigned yep. is not significant enough to 
actually be a punishment, didn't stop the behavior. Mm. And the dog was still reinforced by getting to complete the behavior. So in order for it to stop the behavior, you have to go to a value high enough that the the maths doesn't line up anymore. And the dog goes, that is not worth going through in order to get that reinforcer. But here's the problem, right? Well, here's the thing. So then the dog doesn't get the reinforcer that it wanted to, right? Mm. Because the behavior is stopped via the application of positive punishment. If later, say you only get one rep. Now, what we would say of punishment is that if it doesn't work, it's not punishment, Mm. right? But usually we say that it could take up to, I usually say it takes three reps, right? Like if the dog will in have positive an, punishment. Yeah, in yeah, positive two, punishment. Two to three. Yeah, the dog would normally like what a situation would look like is the punishment occurs. Yep. and the dog goes like, "Oh, wow, that's unexpected. Yep. That happened." Yeah, they then just might think, "Oh, that has nothing to do with what's going on around here. I don't know what happened there. I'll mm. try that again." And then they'll usually make the association. And with some dogs, you'll see them go, uh, "I'll just confirm that." Yep. Right, and then they get a third punishment, and then in that moment. In that location, in that problem, the the behavior is gone. Yes. Right? And that's how punishment works. Yep. Agreed. But the thing is, like, the context changes a little bit and now it's not the same situation. So, like, your presence or even where you're standing in the room or lots of things can change the context enough for the dog to then go, you know what, I'm going to have another crack at that, yep. right? I'm going to – this is enough has changed. The model changed. Mm. Right. So, you might find like, – when people say, oh, punishment will work within three reps, like, that's – three reps while everything's the same. As soon as something changes, now the, the, the formula has to be rearranged. Okay, but let me go back to the topic. Mm. So the dog does it, he gets punished. He does it a second time, he gets punished and goes, okay, that's not, that's not going to happen. Uh, I'm not going to do that again. The circumstance changes just slightly. And in this example, say it's a counter surfing using electric collar, like not that I think that's the best way to do that, but this is an example, right? Now you're not there and the dog gets onto the counter and is reinforced. So what you actually did was you're not using a variable punishment schedule. You're using a variable reinforcement schedule. And so you are strengthening the behavior. Mm. So it's the opposite of what you're asking, Caleb, is that using a variable punishment schedule, I don't believe that's a thing. I don't think you can actually use a variable punishment schedule. And why would you want to anyway? Yeah, exactly. But if the only reason anybody does is because they're not committed to seeing it through, Mm. right? And they haven't set themselves up for success, right? It's that, you know, Again, let's stick with the same example. The dog gets on the counter, we stim him, he gets off, mm. and then you don't put the you leave the loaf of bread out and your dog is free in the house and you don't have the gear on and he eats it and you go, Oh, you got me this time, right? You're not on a variable punishment schedule, you're on a variable reinforcement schedule. Yeah. And so you will strengthen the behavior. Mm. So that is something to keep in mind. And so I'm not a huge I'm not anti punishment, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm not a big user of punishment for that reason. I think that it can be tricky to use in that regard. I would much rather use reinforcement into an alternate behavior. And then I would even layer some negative reinforcement into that alternate behavior to create, you know, reliability Mm. and I'll get the same effect as punishment. But then my variable schedule of reinforcement will go into the alternate behavior to strengthen it rather than into the actual behavior that is the problem behavior we're trying to get rid of. Yeah, kind of conditioning. 
Yeah, exactly. Mm. But I think that's something to be very, very careful of. There's a, a variable punishment schedule probably doesn't exist in that what you're putting the dog onto is a variable reinforcement schedule mm. of a behavior that you have intended to punish away and will therefore strengthen the behavior. I would also go in to say that I believe that that would spark up an unethical debate in training dogs when you're talking about variability in punishment. I believe that punishment should be swift to the point and it should get the message through quickly to the dog. And the way I relate it often is the electric fence model when you've got horses in a paddock. Mm-hmm. Electric fences have been modelled on horses. They're not for any other thing, okay? It's not for humans. It's not for dogs. It's specifically designed to give an appropriate punisher to a horse. And when you ask most people, and this is why when Pat was talking about how many times would it take the punisher to create an effect in the dog, two to three times, okay, this was modelled on horses actually understanding the concept of how a fence works. So a horse will walk over to an electric fence, it'll lean against it, it goes bang, and the horse goes shit, and it moves away. Okay, it will try again at another location, bang, and it moves away and it might go to one more location. So it's usually two to three times. Mm. If you ask anybody who's invested in horses or a horse trainer or a horse owner, they always say the same thing, two to three times. That's the generalization in it. And the effectiveness of it is to teach the horse how to have a symbiotic relationship with the fence and understand that if I lean up against you, you're going to consistently punish me at that level enough to drive me away and stop me touching the fence. Yeah. The problem, if it's weak enough and the horse goes, oh, I can sort of endure that, then it's a problem in itself because then the horse will go over and start touching the fence. The problem with the fence itself is when people don't use electric fences because they're worried about the unethical side of it, then they run the risk of having their horse potato peel their, their skin off their legs when they start running up and down the fence line. So I'm not going to get into the whole unethical and ethical side of horse training, but the reality is if you utilize that model properly with the horse, the horse understands two to three times on the fence, that's it. I don't go near the fence anymore. Mm. So after even a period of time, you can switch the fence off because the horse is conditioned to understand that is a fair, reasonable and strong punisher that occurs every single time without remorse, without change, without tone, there's nothing to it. Touch the fence, you're going to get a belting and just stay away from it. Mm. So the horse will eat grass around it. It'll lean over the fence to eat grass. It just won't touch the fence anymore. Yeah. Yeah. There's an old Simpsons episode. I talk about this a fair bit. The uh, one with Bart and Lisa. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Th- there's a sep- there's an episode where for her science experiment, Lisa sets out to prove that this hamster she has is smarter than Bart. Right? <laughs> yes. And there's a scene where she electrifies a cupcake and the hamster touches it, gets electrocuted and runs to the corner of its cage and, mm. and is fearful of the cupcake, right? And so- then she puts the same cupcake out with the same charge mm. and Bart walks up to it and goes like, ooh, cupcake, dzz, ooh, cupcake, dzz, ooh, cupcake, dzz, and is continually stimbied over and over. Mm. And what she deduces from that is that the hamster is smarter than Bart, which is scientifically inaccurate, right? Yep. How dare they, you Simpsons, right? Like you should, <laughs> everything should be 100% accurate. You predicted the future on so many things. How can you get that wrong? I know. But it's a good example because that is to him not punishment, mm. right? So to the hamster, because it's a smaller, more sensitive creature, whatever. Yeah, it's set up for his tolerance. That was an event that he goes, okay, what I would probably argue is that probably went past punishment and went into like shutting the hamster down, Yeah. right? Now it's cartoon. We don't read that too much into it. But we talk about the use of, say, aversive stim versus cutting all drive. Mm. And what I think cutting all drive is – basically punishing the activation of the seeking system. Because most of the time when somebody is going to do that with a a dog, and this is the problem of, say, electric collars, right, is that somebody buys one on 
uh, online. They buy one for 25 bucks. Yeah. That, you know, it's got levels you can choose, but it puts out whatever it feels like. Mm. The dog displays some sort of behavior they don't want. They, yep. they steam the dog and, and then the dog is no longer doing that behavior and they think that they call it successful. And the issue then would be a lot of people when they do that are actually shutting their dog down. Yeah, you've punched through the ceiling of learning. Yeah, and, mm. and the metric on that is whether the dog will take food because mm. most of the time if people are looking to use like a, a very high-level positive punishment, it's usually because of a aggression or a prey-based behavior. It's usually mm. some sort of chasing type activity. That's where most people try to use that. Mm. Or it might be, you know, for some people, it could even be leash pulling, right? Like the dog's pulling on a leash and when he hits the end of the line, you, you nail him. And the problem with that is that the dog is trying to get something that it wants. It's in seeking. If it's not aggression, if it's in the seeking system part of its brain and you punish that at high enough level and then the other dog won't take food, what you've actually done is punish the activation of the seeking system, which is a disaster. You mm. do not want that in any way, shape, or form. So that's perhaps in Barton Lisa's case, maybe that's what happened to that hamster. Like he's completely shut down. He won't take food, right? Rather than understand, oh, that very specific action had a very specific consequence. I yep. will avoid Just that, that item. Yeah, I mm. will avoid that very specific consequence by avoiding that very specific action. Yeah. But then what happened in the in the cartoon is Bart just keeps going back and he actually gets a little bit angry by it and starts doing it harder and more persistently, which is very interesting because- that would then be an activation stim, right? And so that's the issue of when you're trying to use punishment, especially mm. via electrics, is that there's a like a sweet spot that has to be used because too much is a disaster and you definitely don't want it's that. It's the Goldilocks method. Yeah, mm. but too little can actually reinforce the behavior itself. Mm. And that can be really difficult for people to understand, but I think that cartoon is a very good example of it. And even though they had no intention of showing that. You have to put that, it up in the group now. Yeah, I'll have to find, find it, it, right? Mm. But the issue is that I, I feel very strongly that a, a stim, and I mean a stimulus, right? So any sort of input yep. that happens within a behavior without stopping the behavior actually becomes an activator of that behavior. Yep. And what we see is that happens pretty commonly. You see people uh, who quite rightly teach their obedience over here and their bite work over here, and they don't bring the two together until each is what they like. And mm -hmm. I do that. That's exactly how I think most people in the bite sports would train, mm -hmm. right? You do all your obedience, you get that really nice. And when you do bite work, you just don't use obedience. The dog's allowed to do whatever it wants, right? Mm -hmm. And then unfortunately, what you see is a lot of people, they they bring their dog into the presence of the decoy. One day they decide, okay, we're going to put these two things together. We have to, you know, start moving on. He's at that point in his training. The dog lights up, loses his shit because he's in the presence of a decoy. And they ask for an obedience command. They ask for sit, for example, right? And the dog says, fuck your sit. Like, that's not what happens here. I, this is my, all my contextual learning is this is activation, activation. I bite, I'm, I'm, I'm barking, I'm lunging, I'm growling. I want mm. that decoy. Or they're fixed in prey, whatever their training is, right? They're locked onto the decoy. And then the people will use their prong collar and they'll use their prong collar at a same level and intensity that they have in their obedience training, right? But they probably didn't use very much at all in their obedience training because they managed yep. their environment. They did all those things right. Yeah. And so they give their dog a little nag on the prong collar and it doesn't have any effect. It loads them. And then the dog, well, it has, initially it has absolutely no effect and they go, oh, well, we'll try this tomorrow, right? Mm. Or it's not working. And then the dog gets to bite anyway. And then that now 
that activation that happened within a behavior of barking, lunging, growling didn't change the behavior of barking, lunging, growling. And so it becomes an activator of barking, lunging, growling. Mm. So they do a couple of sessions like that. And then the training director or they consult someone or whatever, then they say, Hey, like I'm having some real issues here because my prong is not working. Like my dog's not doing any of the obedience that I'm asking for in the presence of the decoy. I'm having trouble putting those two things together. And then they say, Oh, just go higher. Right. And so now you've used this prong. There's been a learning phase where the dog has been like, Oh, when that prong happens in the presence of the decoy, I bark, lunge, growl, and it stops. And he learned that when he didn't give a shit about the prong collar, it didn't mean anything to him at that point. Mm. Right. And now we think, well, fuck you. Like I'm going to alter your behavior with this prong collar. And you give him the, like a higher level nag and you start using it with like more intensity but the dog's understanding of that prong collar is I turn that off by barking, lunging, growling at the decoy. So it makes the whole situation worse. Mm. And then people, you know, they get frustrated and they start using much more and more pressure and the dog uh, starts going more and more. And it's this feedback loop, right, where your inputs to the dog and what you're intending to express Yeah is not what the dog is understanding, right? In fact, the dog is in most times in that moment doing exactly what you have trained him to do. Yep. Like if you were to ask the dog, like most people will be yelling at the dog and saying, oh, he's being belligerent or whatever. And we have to keep in mind as well that the your verbal commands that you give the dog mean much less to him than your tactile commands. So mm. what he can feel you doing via that prong collar. Now, that means much less to him than your verbal command. And so- a lot of people get angry and they'll be yelling at the dog and the dog's like, well, I hear you yelling at me and I understand that word no, but I also feel you hitting me with that prong and I fucking want to turn that off. And as to the best of my knowledge, the only way to turn that off is by doing with more intensity the barking, lunging, growling. But the interesting thing, just to interject for a second, the interesting thing is do they actually hear you the same way Probably when they're not. flooded with the, with adrenaline? Yeah, so so th we could debate that as well, yeah. right? Whether they because even you, you chemically the change. Yeah, whether they even hear the command is another thing that we could debate. And in some cases I'd say I think certainly in – some aggression cases that they probably don't. Mm. And I think even breed would have a big determinant in whether a dog is even able to hear you in that circumstance. It would have a lot to do with the breed of the dog, its genetic predisposition to take direction under duress, mm. as well as the commands you're using, the training, that like how the dog has like the frame of mind of the dog. If the dog's locked in prey, he's much more likely to be able to listen to than if he's barking in defense. Yeah, you know, there's lots of different inputs to that, which we can discuss. But so, as I say, the issue is the dog now is doing, you're hitting the prong, trying to stop the behavior, mm. but the dog is, you're intensifying the behavior that you're trying to stop, but the dog is not wrong to do that. Like he's, you have created a misunderstanding between the two of you. Yep. And then the problem can be eventually it will work because you'll get to, you'll it will hit become, a threshold. Well, it will become punishment. Yep. You will reach the point yep. where what you're intending to use is say negative reinforcement into the behavior. Mm. You will eventually that like you'll tip, the scales will tip and the idea that I'm going to be nagging the dog out of barking, lunging, growling into heel, when I'm nagging him, I'm intensifying, I'm intensifying, I'm intensifying, that will stop, mm. right? And it will get to the point where he thinks, fuck, I just, I don't know what to do. I'll try nothing. 
And that what you're essentially doing is shutting down your seeking system mm. in that moment anyway, which is kind of a disaster because if your intent, like, first of all, there's the issue of you causing a lot of uh, conflict with the dog that needn't be there, right? Mm. You, you're, you're in confusing the dog. And a lot of people don't acknowledge that in that moment, that that's going to be confusing the dog. But they don't acknowledge or don't understand. Yeah. Both. Yep. Right. Both mm. either. Yep. There's that issue. But then the problem is, when it does eventually work, because it will, eventually people will say, ah, just use a prong harder, right? Yeah. Uh, use it harder, Beryl. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why her name just became Beryl. Karen. And in my head, I've been picturing a man it's the whole time. It's supposed to be Karen. It's a man named Beryl. Beryl. I don't know Beryl why. the man. Anyway, so Beryl eventually <laughs> gets the... The prong, the prong collar pressure goes high enough that the dog stops. And in that moment, the reason the dog has stopped doing the barking, lunging, growling at the decoy is because you are punishing mm. barking, lunging, growling at the decoy, not activating another behavior. And that's a disaster. You probably just spent, Beryl, you just spent two years convincing this dog that he should bark, lunge, growl at the decoy. And you accidentally intensified it to make it really good. We've got a really good version of it. And now you've just wrecked it. Right. So that's the problem. It's kind of a long winded roundabout way in that, like, that's why I'm not so into the idea of punishment. I don't really like the idea of punishment because it doesn't, it seldom with our dogs, do we ever want them to do nothing. Yeah. Right. I agree. And, and the, the problem with punishment is that you are just stopping something. Mm. You, you are not starting anything else. And, and, a lot of the times when you punish a dog, right, you're stopping the thing that you wanted him to do, but now he's free to make his own decision about what to do. And what he may choose to do could be far worse than what he was choosing to do his first choice, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why I, the pressure that I would use, I would rather coerce that pressure into an alternate behavior. Like if I'm going to use pressure in that way, I would rather teach the behavior using positive reinforcement and then layer pressure over the top. But the pressure would be usually for something specific, mm. right? It's the power of being able to be given a choice. Yeah. Mm. And I think that like for people who are involved in the dog sports and in working roles, mm. never on the field do you say to the dog, do whatever you want, bruh. Just do, do you do you. And if you do the wrong thing, I'll punish you. Mm. There's never a choice of that. Even when it appears like the dog's free, he's at best at like the most free you'll ever see a dog on a field is searching. Right. Yeah. So he's meant to be searching. He's yeah. not free to go piss on the tree mm. or he's not free to go and do whatever he wants. He's meant to search until he finds. Yeah. And it's the same as. But it's all conditioned. It's all, the, the dog is in a, in a proof stage of its obedience and it's all being preconditioned. Yeah, that's right. But mm. that's what I mean. So if in your training you're saying, don't do that, but do whatever, rather than saying, don't do that. Continue doing this specific thing. Yes. Yeah. Right. So that's that's more negative reinforcement than mm. it is punishment because yep. punishment leaves a lot of variables. So people involved in the bite sports or sports in general, mm. but there's never a point where you go, you can do anything you want. But yep. If you do the wrong thing, which I'm not going to tell you, mm. right? I can't. I'm not going to convey to you what are the wrong things. Yeah. But if you do one of those things, I'm going to punish you. Right. That's never a thing that happens on the field, but it is a thing that happens in the house. Mm. Right? We put the dog in the house and we're like, you're free. You live here, bro. Do whatever you want. Don't do that. Don't do that. Okay. You can do that. Right. <laughs> Whereas a little bit of time invested going like, Hey, do this. Right. Like, Hey, do this thing. There's goodness in this. And then when the dog does do something you don't like, you go like, Hey, don't do that. Go back to one of those things you already know. Mm. Right. Go do one of those things that I already told you was a good thing to do. Yeah. And this is, 
I think most dog trainers get this, but this is what you see a lot of people when they, and I've, certainly I've been guilty of this in the past, is you bring a new dog into the home and you're just like, you live here now, friend. Let's just get on and be best friends forever. <laughs> and they just yeah. unclip the leash and the dog runs into the house and immediately pisses on the couch and, or bites it or whatever. And you're like, don't do that. And now your fucking first relationship with the dog in the house is punishment. Yep. Right? And so it's like, no. I don't like to use punishment for those things. Like I will if I need to, but it's I'm more about effectiveness rather than than, yeah. than anything else. I mean, the tool is still available, but it should be used with discretion and intelligence. Yeah, hundred mm. percent. And that's how you're going to get the most effect from it. I think. Yep. Like I think it. We always certainly a key criteria of all the dog training I do is the attitude of the dog, right? Mm. And that's what keeps my ethics in check, right? In that if as long as the dog looks happy, it's unlikely that he's lying to me about how happy he looks. Mm. So that's that's what's important to me. That takes care of my ethics component. After that, I'm really interested in results. Yep. Right. And so I would rather set the dog up for success. And that's how I find I get best results is with a positive first there mm. you go, Glenn. I owe you a dollar. Positive first approach where we go, here's what I do want you to do, right? And now when you do something that I don't want you to do, I can create a vast difference because you are getting positive reinforcement for the things that you do want to do. Mm. And whether whether it's negative reinforcement out of the other behavior or it's punishment, or if I can just ignore it and let it go extinct, if it's not a dangerous thing or damaging sort of thing, we can create a vast difference where we can go, there's good things over here and there's at best nothing and at worst pressure for doing that. Yep. Right? It affords the dog a nice selection criteria. Mm. Yeah. Whew. That's that question answered. Well answered. Thank you. Oh, pleasure. <laughs> so we're back to the top then. Mm-hmm. Ravi Kumar says, how to build drive. If pup has good drive, how to maintain it and use it in work. Then a space, how to stop the game. One thing I kind of say about building drive is you can't really build it. The dog has what he has. Yeah, there's a ceiling. I think we've discussed this quite a few times in quite a few episodes is that I think you're born with a ceiling. Yeah. And that you can't really breach that, but you can absolutely reach it. Yeah. Can't so, breach it, but you can reach it. So that I think that rather than focusing on how to build drive, I think it it it's more pertinent to – concentrate on not squashing it. Yeah. Because a dog will typically express the amount that they have. Yes. Right. But more often than not, it's important to be careful not to squash the drives that are there. Mm. And people do that by accident kind of all the time. Right. So building drive, like, you know, you would see people with puppies making them hunt for their food. So you might, it's something as simple as scatter feeding them Mm. can be really effective at activating their nose and turning on that hunt drive. Now he's going to, learn to hunt and he's going to hunt through necessity because he's looking for his own food. And you can do that in the yard and give him an infinite amount of time to to eat it. So Mm. it's not like he's ever going to miss a meal or anything like that, but he's going to express drive. Whereas if the dog never has to search for anything, like if you like really tightly manage a young dog and he never searches for anything, he might have a, like he has everything right there in front of him, right? That's why Mm. he never searches. He might have a whole ton of hunting drive that he never expresses. So it's not that we took any of it out of him and it's not that we can ever put any in. We just never give him the opportunity to say like, hey, you should you do that, mm. right? You should express that, right? If I try to help people imagine what this looks like as a pragmatic view to it, I usually explain that the drive that exists in a dog 
is almost like the statue that exists within a column of granite. The more you take off through your shaping and whatever you're doing is what you're left with in the end. Mm. So you can reduce the size by taking to like, let's say for example, you knock the top off it by accident. Okay. So you hit it too hard and you have a crack in it and you think, okay, well now I haven't got seven foot of a model. I'll have to go down to six foot. Mm -hmm. And then you accidentally knock the top off that. And then you have to go down to five foot. Well, you're left with what you're left with. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what I suggest to people is, Shape carefully while you're doing this because what you're left with at the end is what effectively is what you're taking off as you're starting to chip and mold and shape into what you're trying to create in the end. And I think you did a very good explanation of it before when you discussed the whole paradigm around punishment and so forth, because that will certainly shape what's happening with your ceiling as well. Yeah. Because the ceiling that you were initially presented with, that can actually reduce. The ceiling will come down, yeah. but you can't push it up. Yeah. So I think that's it. Like let drive develop. Mm. Time takes time. Time takes time. Yeah. But be careful not to do anything that will stop it developing. Mm. I think that's probably a better mantra rather than thinking, I've got a build drive. I've got a build drive. Just yep. be careful not to, it'll come. It's interesting. You're talking about the scatter feeding and so forth before in, in invoking the seeking drive of the dogs. This happens a lot when people are trying to work with detection dogs. So what they do is they get a little puppy and they don't actually know what they want to do yet. They haven't mapped out what the life of them and their dog is. And this happens when just a lot of pet people get dogs. And then suddenly they get on the forums and they look at their dog and then people say, we well, should do nose work. So you should do this, et cetera, et cetera. So let's say, for example, at some stage, nose works has come into their forum. Okay. They've considered nose works and they've got a dog that's now about 14 months of age, maybe less, maybe more, who knows. But what they have done is they've spent a career telling their puppy no and flicking the dog in the nose every time the dog was starting to sniff around on walks and so forth. So they've spent a long part of their career telling the dogs sniffing is not a good thing. Mm. Okay, when you sniff, you might get flicked with a shoe in the face or something like that, or you might get corrected for it because for some reason you've got it in your head that sniffing is not a good thing and it drives you crazy. Your mentor might have told you that, you know, that a pet dog shouldn't be sniffing along the ground, it shouldn't be doing this, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, again, when you go back to that modeling on, you know, chipping your model out of granite, you've taken several feet out of that or several meters off your granite already. You've cut it down because you've told the dog, don't do this. It doesn't mean that it's not recallable and you can't bring it back because it's a huge survival. It's a genetic trait in the dog. But if the dog feels that there is a problem connected to it, Therefore, the dog won't want to display the behavior with the intensity that it may have at one other stage. Yeah. So that is a possibility when you're starting to limit the amount of drive that the dog or interest that the dog will show in a certain type of behavior. Yeah, for sure. It's where caution must be exercised. It's something I've been playing with a little bit actually lately because my dog, I've never done any nose works with him. He doesn't track. Mm. He doesn't do detection, he bites and does obedience, right? And he'll do an article indication. So he like, that's as close as it gets. And, yep. But I've never, it's not like I've ever like hidden an article from him. I might throw it a little bit and he finds it, but it's, he's not a very nosy dog. Mm. And just lately, just for fun, I've been doing some detection work with him. And it's just to, honestly, it was just be during the lockdown stuff where I had no access to decoys and was just like, well, you know, we'll do this because I can do it alone. Yeah. And- uh, it took a long time, 
to get him using his nose. Mm. Like he just doesn't see a lot of value in doing that. Well, it's not a criteria he's had to rely on. No, it's mm. totally not. And you see, but what's interesting is like you see him hunt for food. Like if you leave him in an area and there's, say like in your training shed, right? Like mm. if if we just we finish training, we're like, oh, you're done. Do whatever you want, chill out. And if someone has left treats in there, he'll find it, Yeah, right? So he's got an active nose, mm. but it's just for kind of looking for his own food on his downtime, right? And when I was then showing him your toys are hidden, man, you can find your own toys. He was like, but you have the toys. <laughs> like, like I'll show you a bunch of behaviors I know in order to earn them. Yeah, and he it, just doesn't understand to switch that over because yeah, it's never been required before. That's right. And so mm. it took a little while. Like it's, mm. it's there. We got it on and it's yep. fine now. He hunts like in ranges quite well and blah, mm. blah, blah. Right. But, uh, and we talked about this before, like he, yep. he was very inwardly focused and I've been able to successfully make him much more outwardly focused and know that he can find and reinforce it. He can find reinforcers and reinforce himself, but the process of uh, using his nose to find those things has actually been a little bit of a challenge. Mm. Not a challenge for me because I just put it out there and stand there and watch <laughs> and wait. Mm. It's been a challenge for him. And he's a, like, he's what, you know, Cameron Ford you know, has talked about. He's like a strong in memory dog. So he will sh check all the places he'd be like, is it here? Because I know this is a place you put it. Is it here? Because I know this is a place you put it. And then when it's not in those places, he goes, ah, sneaky, huh? It's in a new place. Mm. I'll, I'll use my most heightened sense that I have last. <laughs> and then he'll search for it with his nose. And it's taken quite a long time of hiding it in new places every time for him to, as a default, choose to use his nose rather than looking in the places where it would be obvious to hide something. Right? Yep. And it wasn't really, it wasn't until I went to just using raw odor that he was searching better than using like odor in a, a canister because mm. it, like something he could see because he would look around for that. And like I say, I think that his hunt is actually very, very good. Like he's a dog that loves to hunt. Yeah. Um, but I kind of didn't know that until recently because mm. I didn't use it. I didn't. Yeah, it's not been of interest to you. So you've shaped him, well, you haven't shaped him away from it. You've just encouraged him to do other behaviors yeah. that are more suitable to yeah. your interests. So it didn't lead to reinforcement. That's right. So that's what I'm saying. Like it's it's not that I cut it off. I just never let it go. Like I didn't give it a value in in using it. And yeah. so now that I want it, I have to give it a value. And mm. and and I think that that's where a little bit of dog training has to be. It's a little bit art in that regard. In that you you do have to be a bit of a trickster to the dog, mm. right? Like you like so. What I would do is do kind of a dummy drop in the place where I would go, we would stop, I would get out, hide, I was using pipes because he loves a pipe, hide the pipe, then we would drive to somewhere else and we'd come at it from another angle and let him just find it because I, I wanted to take myself out of the picture as completely as possible. Yep. And if I put him in a down and walk off, he's like, ah, I know you put something out there and he'll just track me to where I put it, mm -hmm. right? Like rather than um, just find it himself and go like, holy shit, I have the capacity to just find things, mm. right? And then I get smart about that and layer a command over the top and and now I can activate that behavior yep. with a command. But it started out as truly being a behavior that came from him and was a direct reward in that he just happened to catch a whiff of it. Like he knows the smell of his pipe mm -hmm. and he just was walking along one day and you see his nose like, whoa, I think I can smell my pipe and I'll find it. And it wasn't clear to him at all that I had put that out there. No, I had. I'm sneaky like that, Glenn. Do you think with his olfactory system that he wouldn't be able to smell any chance of- No, but it wasn't from the way we were coming from. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, say imagine you're- 
picturing like like a north, south, east, west, and I approach on our drive from the south, place yep. the pipe, and then drive all the way back around to the north. And so our approach is from the north. And so, of course, he, he can smell me on the ground in the area, yep. but I'm there at that point anyway, and we're just walking together. What he never, what he never had was the opportunity of okay. like – he like you know, especially at his age and how much training I do with him. If I leave him in the car mm. for a minute and then get him out, he's like, oh, "You put something out there, huh? Like you prepared something for me." Well, that's a preparation of a good dog, anyway. I mean, everything, and it doesn't matter whether you're just doing general obedience, competitive work, or scent detection, or whatever it is. Everything starts off elementary, and then, especially in things like scent detection, it has to get increasingly or incrementally harder and harder to the point where you're actually trying to make it difficult for the dog to say to them, I need you to express the most amount of your natural olfaction as you possibly can. Yeah. Cause I, I actually want you to go part, you know, I'm trying to push you past a barrier to realize that I'm putting masking odors over this to try and stop you from finding it. And I, I want to see if you can still do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. Like all that kind of brings around to that, just show the dog in whatever the drives are that you want to increase or build, yep. right? Just show the dog there's value in expressing them. Yep. That's it. That That's really it. And and don't overthink that too much. Mm. Just, here's a little bit of expression of the drive that I want. Now it leads to reinforcement. Yep. Next time it's going to take a little bit more of the, mm. the expression that I want. But try and reinforce the dog in the drive that you want expressed. Yeah, that's right. Because I mean, a lot of this is manufactured to serve us. So we just have to educate the dog that we want it and it's highly rewardable. Yes. Mm. In a nutshell. All right. Yeah. Maggie Scarvel. I like that name, Scarvel. Do you? Yeah. It sounds very uh, European, doesn't it? I like it. Yeah. At what point in behavior mod training program, in a behavior mod, I, I won't, imply that you had a misspelling, Maggie. I will admit that I misread it. At what point in a behavior mod training program do you consider medication as an additional intervention? Glenda, what do you think? Hmm. I think the best answer to that is when an experienced person who has plenty of time in the chair of diagnosing behavioral problems when them and a certain amount of peers that they would refer to have concluded that the dog won't succumb to conventional type of training. I think that's the time to consider medication. And that's usually for me, that's what I do is I'll look at a dog. I'm not saying I get a huge amount of aggression cases, but I take on the ones I want to take on. I can be selective. I'm lucky. But when I look at the dog and I think to myself, you know, this one takes the cake I might ring up someone like Andrew Clark or I might ring up you or someone like that and I'll just say, look, or just tell them, you know, go and see Pat, go and see Andrew, go and see this person. And if all of these people line up and say, oh, man, this dog is a bag of nuts, that's the time that medication should be considered. Yeah. You know, when everybody has kind of looked at it and said, I don't even know what angle to approach this on, it's really time to consider medication. I agree. I think that it's when you're trying things and they're not working. Yeah. And so long as you have a big, tool bag gamut. Yeah. and you're trying lots of different stuff. Yeah. And I think the hard part in that as well is knowing how, like whether you're doing it. That's right. That's why whether, other people need to look. No, but also, you know, like I've had certain, I've, I've recommended people go on meds and I've had plenty of clients that came to me on meds and I usually don't 
bother with the talk about trying to get them off, mm. right? Because if they're still coming to me and the dog's on meds, it's clearly not working. So they're very – they'll usually talk themselves out of that, right? Yep. And, and also I don't know shit about – you know, weaning dogs off those sorts of things. Like that's not something you should just go cold turkey. No, not at all. I've seen a lot of trainers like to say to people, oh, get that dog off the meds. And no, it's like, no. Definitely not. So like I don't have good advice on that. Mm. But I think the couple of times that I've said to like, hey, this is out of my league was when I was the third trainer, I think in both cases, and everything I was trying was not working. Mm. And the one time I actually said, give me the dog for a week and let me see what I can do about this because that removes the handler as a variable, mm. right? And I was like, yeah, you know, things that – and I was trying all the things that I know and I think I might have – did I get you to come and look at that? I can't remember. Well, I got someone else and I was, I was like, hey, are you seeing what I'm seeing here? And they were like, yeah, uh, this is this I, something I don't that's know screw me. loose on this dog. Mm. Might have been someone else. Anyway, but the point is – when things that you see work elsewhere are not working, that's yeah. when you can go, hey, this dog's maybe got a screw loose. And I think that as an industry, there's kind of two camps, right? There's people that really are quick to say there's something wrong with the dog and maybe don't investigate other methods of training or-, or Well, if it falls outside their scope and they have a limited imagination and scope on what they're doing, usually what they will say is, Reach for meds. Yeah. And they've been conditioned themselves to do that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, maybe their mentor or peers or even that just feels like a, an easy opt out to yeah. go into those situations. There have been times where people have presented dogs to me before and I've looked at it and I, one of the questions I ask them is, what was the dog like before you put it on medication? You know, like if a dog comes with meds, what was the dog like before medications? What was it that made you do it? And sometimes they'll pretty much come out with, well, I went to see a person and i just did the inverted comma hands mm -hmm. i went to see a person and this person was pretty much writing me a script before i sat down yeah so that person, there's plenty of that. that and that's right and that's that person's mandate is generally get them on meds mm -hmm. you know i mean i'm not saying it was the it was absolutely the wrong choice but i'm saying that sometimes that's the convenient comfort that they find is you know if i get this person on meds maybe 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 it's a repeat script you know, maybe I can keep selling meds. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, I, I, I'm less into the idea that people want to just make money by writing the script. I, I hope think not. That it, I, I think hope that not. It, I think usually what happens is people just follow their success. And so, and typically the meds work, like yeah. it, from the perspective of the owner. It's not, it may not be working particularly well from the perspective of the animal, mm. but from the perspective of the owner, my dog who seemed erratic and was all over the place is no longer that. Therefore, these meds are good and effective. And I think that when you get that feedback, say as a, you know, you get a veterinary, well, it's only going to be a, like a veterinary behaviorist that's going to be writing that script, right? Mm. So you, when they then get that uh, feedback and say like, hey, my dog was a disaster. You wrote me this script. He's no longer, from my perspective, he's no longer a disaster then they go, cool, like that's success. And they want to continue, like, why would you take him off? Of course it's a repeat script because mm. you you told me you tried other things and what you tried, that's what we can, or me and you can discuss. And that's mm. our variable, that's, that's our level of input. But by the time people get to a veterinary behaviorist, some people go straight there. Some people go after failed training, but meds usually do work. And if they don't, you up, the, <laughs> you up them until mm. they do, right? Or you try a different one until they do, but they eventually they, most often than not, that they do knock the edge off of whatever it is. And I think that a lot, I think, 
I just don't think there's anything that malicious in it. I think that people really like most veterinary behaviorists that are doing that are doing so because they found success doing it. And you know, just- I'm, sorry, I'm going to go out on a whim here and just say that almost sounds like a chemical version of high level punishment. What do you mean? Well, it, just, it completely shuts down the dog. Well, well, that's what SSRI is like. It's, uh, that's what it stands for. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Yeah. Yeah. That's so what it means, folks, if you didn't know what an SSRI is. But I mean, that's basically what they do. So it's basically a chemical version of a high-level punisher. It just completely shuts the dog down. Well, but the thing is, I, I just feel like that's dangerous territory to talk about as being always a bad thing. Like I think that – I think meds yeah. – Some dogs need it. Yeah. Some think, dogs need high-level punishers. Yeah. I think that meds – of that type mm. in dogs and people are overprescribed. Yep. But in some cases they are absolutely necessary. You know what right? I'd like to do? I'd like to talk to someone smarter than us on this it's everybody, topic. Glenn. That's literally everybody. Pretty much. <laughs> I would like I definitely would. I'd like to somebody somebody who hasn't got a dog in the race of, of prescribing it and selling it that has very high yeah. level institutional knowledge of it. I'd love to hear what they're, you know, like they, somebody who's just not biased on it. Yeah. That doesn't have a dog in the race. Yeah. Well, but I think like of that'd be, all that'd the- That'd be a good, good show topic. Totally. Mm. And, and I'm, it's a topic I'm very interested in, in, in people. And there's a lot of people you can talk to about that. And you've read the book, like Johan Harari's yep. uh, Lost Connections. Mm. And that like some people, meds are- They need them. Totally. They need and them. And I believe yep. the same in dogs. Yes, so I, gr- totally I agree. The there's no argument from me there. And I think that in there's certainly there's an overprescription, but I, I I just don't believe I don't buy so much into the big pharma like they're just trying to get your dog on it and it's a script for life and they continue to make money for life. Like and, and I, I believe that maybe the actual like there's probably that intent from the actual pharmaceutical companies. But mate, if you do you know how much study it is to become a veterinary behavioralist? Like that is so much time at uni. Those people love dogs. Now they now we can debate over whether they are like from our point of view, we think they're doing the right thing. But mm. they are in their mind, like doing the what they see get success. And it's because that's their skill set. Like when you're a when you're a hammer or your problems look like a nail. Mm. But that's how the cycle goes, is that there's there is probably tens of thousands of cases of evidence where Really actually good trainers referred people, like really people who do know what they're doing, yep. referred someone to a veterinary behavioralist and said, hey, this is outside of my my scope. I can't, I can't remedy this dog. We've tried training. We've tried enrichment. We've tried all the things that we can and should try. What do you think about meds? They go, yep, no worries. Here's hmm. the dog on meds. They see success. That goes into the literature. And then what I think the fall down can then happen is that people are then trained in saying like, that case A that really was the perfect example, that's what we should do, mm. case B looks like that to me. And you go, yeah, it might be, but it might not be because the training and fulfillment component may not have actually been taken care of. And it's the same way, like, you know, we get accused a lot of, uh, or I get accused a lot of like, oh, the box, the box, oh, it's just eating from a fucking box. Yeah, like I get it. But the reason why I use that as a, and we talk about it a fair bit, I talk about it a fair bit is because I've seen a, lot, a shit ton of success with it, mm. right? And so the my bias is because there's a lot of success in that. And, and the reason I like the box that way is because we can teach people to do it. There's so much free content out there. We I feel like I've had a really 
in in pushing that out all over the world and getting loads of people doing it, as much as the the flack that I cop for it, there's good feedback. We've probably changed a lot of dogs' lives, and mm. so my view of that is, yeah, hey, what can go wrong, mm. right? Like, give it a shot. It, at at worst, it can do nothing. At best, it can really fix your dog. But do you have a bias? Uh, yeah. Well, I think I probably do have a bias because, uh, like, I am motivated to. I, I just see that it works, and so mm. my bias is towards the success that I perceive. Has anyone come to you and said it doesn't work? Um, yeah. But yeah. when I've interrogated them, well, the one dog, one of the dogs that I suggested put on meds, I tried, that's what I tried when I had the dog for mm. a week and I could not, the box was not doing anything for yeah. that dog, right? So, yeah, uh, it's not the, the magic bullet, but mm. my bias is towards the success of it. Yeah. And I think that most veterinary behavioralists, they're biased. Someone who has the qualifications to write you that script, mm. their bias is towards helping the dog in the best way that they know how. And that's the best way that they know how. And I don't necessarily think that it's always the best way. I'm totally with you on that, but I don't think there's anything malicious in those people. The vet themselves is not like, I will get this. Of course, there's probably, there's bad actors everywhere, right? There's Mm. evildoers in every- I was going to say that just for me, that feels a little utopian. I think like a lot of people start off with very good intentions and- and they certainly do. You know, I'd like to imagine that all people get into their professions with great intentions. To think that some people don't get lazy along the way and it's just, you know, an ugly convenience that that is enforced along the way. I don't know if I totally in- agree with that. I'd like to believe in that utopian view as well, that, that people don't do that. But I'll give you lazy for sure, because mm. then, it, like, as I say, uh, well, I've seen this work. 80 times out of a hundred, mm. let's, let's see if you're the 80, 81st out of 101. Like I get that yeah. without looking that deeply into it. I'm totally on lazy, but I don't think there's malicious. I, I just don't see that. And I think, I, I, I don't think I've ever labeled malicious. No, but like in trying to just make money, like this is I, the script for life or get the dog on the hook and this is it. I've got you as a customer for life. Mm. I just don't like, that's what they're doing. I'm totally with you on that, but I just don't think that that's, the intent. I just think that everybody works within the range and, and scope of their their cap- capacity to help. Fair call. <laughs> yeah. Are we agreeing to disagree? Yeah, kind of. There's validity in your argument, and I've complimented you on this many times. I think that you deep think a lot of things. Like you just don't go into arguments half-cocked and think, oh, I'm just angry today. That tends to be more my, um, <laughs> more my, more my MO. And shamefully, sometimes I am led by my emotions. We all are. It's a character flaw. It's something that I've admittedly told people that I'm trying to improve on. You know, as you get older, you should be more wise and you should collect your thoughts a little bit and engage your brain before you engage your mouth. But I still have a jaded view on things like that. I'm cautious. And I guess I touched on it before when I think it's more laziness than it is maliciousness. Mm Mm-hmm. I think people can get lazy and it can be very convenient for them just on things that I've seen and people that I've spoken to. And that's generally when I ask the question, what was your dog like before it went on medication? Mm. And I certainly believe, you know, like in things like the Milgram experiment and so forth, when people in a level of authority, when they just say to you, just do this, I'm a professional, most people will follow along blindly. They just Mm. look at the person and go, well, you are a person in a lab coat or a you know, a profession or you're wearing a uniform and you are the respective trained person. So you must be smarter than me. So I just have to do it. Mm. And they don't tend to put up much of an argument or resistance against it. 
because they don't have the institutional knowledge themselves to base an argument on it. They just go ahead and say, well, you're the smartest person in the room. Mm. You must be right. I don't know, mate. That's why I said to you, I'd love to have someone on the show yeah. without a dog in the race that does have some very, very good. There's probably no one that doesn't have a dog in the race, though. That's, that's the, the hard part, isn't it? Like, that's I, the I hard don't know part. who that person is. Because yeah. if you know enough about it, then yeah. you're, you have a side. Yeah. I think the issue, like for me, there are definitely, especially here in Sydney, there are veterinary behavioralists that are so anti balanced training. Yep. That rather than tell the dog no, it should be put on meds. Absolutely. And that's the people that I base my caution around. Yeah. I think I could make an argument that they're wrong, but I still don't think that they're malicious or or that they're they're doing it with intent other than to help the dog. I think that they're wrong and, and me and you could probably point that out to them if they ever gave us the opportunity and we mm. could show them that and demonstrate it and a blind test on like, hey, let me take that dog off those meds like slowly and you manage that, yep. bring him back to the baseline and see what I can do with just behavior modification. Mm. That would be amazing if you could. Well, it's been done before, not once or twice, but multiple amount of times where yeah. dogs have been removed from meds and lived happily ever after. Yeah. But then the argument might be is, oh, but it was the meds that complemented that. that of course, and, and perhaps it did. And perhaps right? it did. But I think what seldom gets acknowledged is that the training technique not seldom gets acknowledged. What's the right word? Is it they don't like the way you fix it? Mm-hmm. That's the problem. Yeah, it doesn't resonate with their practices yeah. or their beliefs. What would be interesting? And again, it's it's a utopian view on their behalf. What would be the person if this unicorn exists mm-hmm. would be an effective balanced trainer who also has the capacity to write that script. Yep, that would be a very interesting person if such a person exists. Yes, right? I agree. So they really because you know for you and I. We can try what we can try and then we can go, hey, uh, I'm out. Here's the number of the next person, right, who can write you that script. Is there such a person who is actually a very effective balanced trainer who can then say, all right, we've tried all of this. Let's let's write the script. That's a dangerous thing for that person because then they can become an industry pariah in their profession. They probably would be. Because they whistleblow on – Well, but I mean – yeah, but they, we would be asking them to whistleblow. But, but, um, but that would be an interesting person if that exists, right? Yeah. Where you could be like, hey, we'll try all these things, behavior mod. And and look, I, I think that my local vet is that. He mm. just outsources the, the training part to me yep. or to others, right? They've got all the cards on the table. I'm not the only one. There's multiple people. I seem to be the one that gets the call the calls about the really – dire cases, mm. um, I guess, because they've seen me handle those successfully. But again, they're the ones that I have then said to people like, nah, I'm out of my depth. Like mm. I've trying what I know should work. And I think, you know, really it's an interesting conversation we're having, but to go back to the core of the question is when you and others, depending on your, like it could be you if you're in isolation and you have a huge skill set or others if your skill set is limited and mm. you need to outsource multiple limited skill sets to create a big one, when you go, hey, we're trying and it ain't working, yep. that's when you go, all right, well, the principles are not – the things that we know should work and we've seen work in the past mm. and the varia- the variances that we can do to that, yep. none of this is working. We're exhausted on what we know. Now it's time to to use meds. Yeah. 
And to conclude what I was talking about before, and I think we've already established this, is I'm not anti-med at all. No. And if it is required, because I've seen it work in people and in dogs before, I'm just saying that I'm anti-laziness in prescribing medication. Yeah. That's where my, I guess, my contempt lies in that field. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I and am. And rightfully so, I believe. I'll tell you what I am anti, uh, and fixing this problem would probably fix the meds problem, mm-hmm. is- Getting working dogs with no intention to let them work. Oh, that's terrible. That's that's disgraceful. The overwhelming majority of dogs that are on meds are mm. because they're not doing what they're meant to be doing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like that's it, that's yeah, they're, really they're, the core it, of it. It's as as you've said many times, it's a lack of biological fulfillment. Yeah, mm. big time, right? And it's not letting a Viking be a Viking. Yeah. Yeah. I have two of those dogs. Yeah. Both my dogs live be- – I live in a tiny place. Yeah. I, I, we all live on top of each other, and my two super high-drive working breed dogs mm. are very happy living there. But it's because I put in the work. They get to work. Yeah. Like they worked every day. And when I can't, they have to come here because I they would be unlivable. Yep. Remy without me at home, mate, he would be fucking unbearable to live with. Mm. That so motherfucker would destroy Randy, your Randy, life. People don't understand what a ball of energy Randy is. Yeah, like he is like just, all good working dogs. Like That's all good working are, dogs, right? exactly. And they they're not meant to be turning food into shit. That's and, right. And when I'm away, my dog has to come here. Valerie can handle it. She can be at home. She's mm. fine. But Remy would be too much of a headache to deal with. And yep. it's not safe for him. It's yep. not safe for him. It's not safe for Jane. Yep. And and I don't mean safe as in he's going to bite someone. He will injure himself just yep. doing backflips in my house. And you don't want to put Jane in a situation where she has to undo something you've been doing. Yeah. He's better off being in an environment where he can be, you know, a bit of a handful. Yeah. And he can be managed safely. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Exactly. I agree. Exactly. It's but, funny, just on a sidestep, you know, I use the comment, before about you know Vikings needing to be Vikings. Somebody pulled me up on that the other day and saying, so you were saying that a Viking needs to kill and maim and everything. I said, do you understand the concept of a Viking? Like they do it when they need to do it, but in the other time they're fathers, husbands, farmers, they're working within a realm of a village and everything like that. And I said, it's exactly the same as what a working dog does. Mm. They just need the outlet to be what they're designed to be. Mm. Mm. Watch that show Vikings. Yeah. So good. So good. <laughs> Good. Yeah. The Last Kingdom is really good too on really? Netflix. Yes, very good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You reckon we answered that question? I think so. Hey, I've got something I wanted to say about this. Mm. So I just read this book called Breath or Breathe. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. You've been telling me. Yeah. yeah. Sounds so fascinating. By this guy, James Nestor. Mm. It's about breathing and breathing techniques and all kinds of stuff. And when we're talking about meds, we're usually talking about sort of anxious dogs. And and one of the things that's interesting about dogs is, you know, they can't sweat, so they pant. Yes. Right? Yes. And Panting in a dog that hasn't sort of exerted itself, we kind of associate with and identify as, you know, stress, okay? So we look at the dog, he's panting, and we go, okay, right, something's going on here. Like he shouldn't be, he's not exerted, he's panting, something's wrong. Well, this book, everybody should read it. It's very interesting, Mm -hmm. but it's about sort of relation. There's parts on it that's about the relationship between oxygen and carbon dioxide. And panting sort of like breathing shallow fast like that is going to cause this big buildup in carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And one of the experiments that someone did is one of these horrific experiments. Thank God you can never do anymore. Is they put these masks on the dogs and force them to pant. So an unexerted dog gets this like gas mask sort of thing where they can control his in and out breathing and Mm. they force him to pant and they immediately become anxious and put them into that sort of anxiety state that we've all witnessed in dogs that we would go like, oh. And the issue then is it becomes sort of a feedback loop. And it's the same in people Mm. in that when you have like a panic attack, it's usually 
then pro like people who are having a panic attack will say, oh, like they've got no oxygen. They, I can't breathe. That's why they breathe that way. But it's it's breathing that way that causes you to feel that way. Mm. And so you're stuck in this feedback loop. And what was it was very interesting to me. I'm going to plug the box again. Well, you have to you'll have to put the book in the Canine Paradigm Book Club. Yeah, I will. Yeah, mm. yeah. One of the most amazing things in this book was they talk about how they get people with no fear center in their brain, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there's reasons that could happen. It could be damaged or it could be born without it, but they can tell whether you have one or not, right? And the first person they did this to was a lady who had, I can't remember the name of the disease, but it destroyed her fear center in her brain. No fear, anxiety, totally incapable of feeling it. They sat her down and they gave her one hit of carbon dioxide, like a breath of yep. carbon dioxide, and she had an immediate panic attack. Yeah. Right? You told me that, and it's absolutely fascinating. Which tells us mm. there's a way to feel fear and anxiety outside of your brain. Without invoking an actual stimulus. Your body. Well, it is a stimulus, I guess. It's, yeah, yeah, but your that's feeling it in your body. Yeah. It's not even yeah. like she does not have a part of her brain that is capable of feeling fear yeah. and anxiety, but they gave her one hit of carbon dioxide and she had a panic attack for the first time. She's never been scared of anything in her life wow. and was suddenly freaking out mm. to the point she was so bad to her that they couldn't replicate the experiment because she refused to do it again. She was like, not a chance. Like, I never want to experience this again. again. And they had to find other willing participants to do that. Wow. The same will happen. Get this. The same will happen to like you and I, unless you have pre-trained your body to dealing with large buildups of carbon dioxide. So if you get, say, free divers, who say people who can hold their breath for seven, eight minutes, yep. or the example I actually use in the book, they've got like a chamber and they use this for training people to deal with uh, anxiety is they they train them to deal with that buildup of carbon dioxide. And you can, in a controlled environment, take a hit, right, of a, a not straight carbon dioxide, but a, a higher volume of it um, than we would normally get. And it's totally safe, right? Like at at the, it's not going to do anything to your body, like at the levels that you're taking in your blood saturation, oxygen saturation stays the same, but you are going to have a panic attack and you can then, they can give you one, right? Like in a controlled environment without your actual trigger that would normally cause you, they can just go like, here, take a breath of this immediate Mm. panic attack. But then you can cope like practice coming out of it, right? Like and managing it. But, then they get people who are breathwork sort of experts and Wim Hof style breathing or Tumo style mm. breathing, which involves a breath hold segment, yep. doesn't happen to them. Right. Right. Because they're- they, they build a tolerance up. Yeah. Well, mm. they're used to the idea of this is what an overwhelming feeling of needing to breathe feels like and yep. it doesn't cause a panic. Well, Bart told me one time- he goes, with that dog, even though you're not going to do any any scent work, you got to let him sniff, right? you got to let him use his nose because it will teach him to calm down, mm-hmm. right? It's meditation for him. And that's one of the reasons I always talk about the box being yep. meditation. Well, that basically confirms the hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. That by when a dog's doing scent work, he's got to close his mouth, he's got to breathe through his nose, and he's got to take like longer, more drawn breaths. Yep. So I'm drawing a conclusion so, here. So you're justifying your medication here. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm saying is that fulfillment of letting dogs sniff, yep. and this would explain as well why you see dogs when they displace, like mm. you put, you see dogs through fear go into displacement, they start yep. sniffing, yep. right? And that would support that hypothesis. I mean, it's a hypothesis, I haven't done the experiments, but uh, the idea that that's a big part of 
dispersing stress mm. is nasal breathing, slow, deliberate breaths. Yep. Open mouth panting is going to continue it. And that's one of the reasons why I think that the box work in the way that we do it actually assists because yep. you're showing the dog in these times of stress, if you're indicating on the article, slow down, breathe through your nose, concentrate on what you're doing. Exactly like meditation. Interesting, hey? That, that's a fair conclusion. Mate, that no fear sound of thing. You know what's weird about me though? I immediately was like, I need to find that experiment. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately thought, I need to try that. I'm so curious about what effect that would have on oh, me. Oh, you want to have a hit of- Oh, I totally want to do it. Yeah. I 100% want to do it. Yeah. And just see how, like, first of all, the What effect, an induced panic attack feels like. Yeah, the effect. Yeah. I've never had a panic attack to my knowledge. Like, I, yeah. I, first of all, I think that would give me an ability to have more empathy for people that do. Yeah. To experience it myself and- know what it's really like but also i'm so curious about how i could come out of that i had a bad one once many many years ago and it was when i was going through my state of depression i thought i stopped breathing like i actually felt like i stopped breathing yeah breathing i was in bed at the time and i, I couldn't actually feel my heartbeat and i was convinced that my heart stopped and i was i didn't know whether i was alive <laughs> or dead it was the most bizarre feeling i've ever felt in my life so I thought my heart stopped. So I stood on top of my bed and I jumped onto the floor like chest first, thinking that I have to get my heart to start again. Wow. And I was running around the house thinking, I'm dying. I'm yeah, dead. Yeah. You know, it was crazy. It yeah. really was. I was consumed by this completely irrational thought. You know, I rang a, a, a friend of mine up and he said, are you near a mirror? And I said, yes. And he said, because I thought I'd stop breathing. I thought I was the walking dead. Mm -hmm. And he said, go and stand near the mirror and put your mouth near it. And he said, can you see it fogging? And I said, yes. And he said, well, you're definitely breathing. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that was the only thing that took me off the edge. I heard a 911 call recorded the other day. <laughs> Guy's on acid and he's talking about how his uh, fingers are <laughs> knives. <laughs> how he what? His fingers are knives. So it's like, 911, what's your emergency? And he goes, my fingers are knives. <laughs> like, like Freddy Krueger sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, wow. He's like dripping out. Yeah. And she's like, I can't remember the exact words of it, but she talks him around and the guy's like, oh, wait, they're just fingers. <laughs> <laughs> she's like... How did you pick up the phone? He goes, like, with my with, fingers. With my with <laughs> yeah. my not finger knives. Yeah, and then she's like, so, like, she's like, look down. What do you see? She's like, I see knives. He goes, how did you dial the phone? With my fingers. And then he goes, like, oh, okay. <laughs> this acid's really get a, get a steak out of the fridge. Cut it with your finger. <laughs> oh, hmm. goodness. All right, let me find the next question. Well, the next one's calming protocol. So we kind of covered that. Training plan Dallas asked about, but then realized that we've already answered that. So Jordan says, would love to hear your thoughts on instrumental aggression from Roger Abrantes and when instances of aggression should or should not be targeted with behavior modification. Is that too big a question? It's a big question. The main thing with instrumental aggression, if you look at the model that Abrantes talks about, that's generally when a dog or even a human is planning on is planning on it. It's it's like I mean the word instrumental is operant, so there it's outcome based. It's reward based generally. Mm -hmm. So if let's say for example the dog sees another dog playing with something and it wants it, and it thinks well what I need to do here is go over and attack that dog, and then I can be rewarded by taking what it's got. Yeah. So it's aggression with an outcome. It's not fear-based where the dog is trying to escape its situation. And the difficulty is with, with instrumental aggression, you can correct it if you understand what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Like the dog can be punished for it because what you want to do is remove the ability of that dog thinking it's going to be rewarded by doing that, by performing that act and then getting an outcome for it. Whereas a fear-based aggression, 
you can't punish away fear. Rewarding a fearful behavior is absurd, as is trying to punish it. Yeah. Because you can't reduce the feeling and or experiencing the emotion by rewarding or punishing it. Yeah. I think that's the that's the distinction which is huge. Mm. And that's, you know, from Roger Brandis when we spoke to him. Yes. Was the idea that you can punish fear. It is okay to not uh, fear. Yeah. Aggression. aggression. Yeah. But you, you can have to, if yeah. you can really determine that's yeah, what it is. It's the determination of it. Yeah. And if it is operant based or instrumentally based, then you can. But mm. again, you really need to know what you're looking at. Yeah. You know, like is this dog doing it to relieve its its fearful state? Then extreme caution needs to be represented around that. And that's where you really need to get into your your systematic desensitization or counter conditioning programs. Mm. Whereas where it's instrumental, yeah, you can punish the dog for it. Yeah. yeah. It, and, and that takes experience. That's right. Because yeah. I was going to say that's a really tricky decision to do that. Yes. Because as we discussed earlier, the idea of punishment and context changing just a little bit and it being a reset. Yeah. So like you might think like if it's instrumental aggression, you've got an aggressive dog that is like takes dominant over toys, right? Mm. And is willing to fight over those toys. And you might go, hey, you can't do that. Here now in this context. And then the context changes slightly and the dog goes, oh, I'll have another crack or because that's who I feel that I am, Yeah, right? So then you've got to be prepared to control the dogs, control the environment, control everything enough that that becomes generalized. And he goes, oh, okay, so I shouldn't do that ever, Mm. right? Rather than like, oh, okay, right here, right now, I won't do that. But when you're not here, I will, will do that. Right, that's the tricky part in managing that or choosing that as a path. Right. Well, I'll give you a practical example of something that I consider instrumental aggression. So, as you know, I've got a couple of French bulldogs. I've got a father and daughter that cohabitate with each other quite regularly, which is Opie and Pixel. Mm-hmm. If I'm in the kitchen and I'm preparing food or anything like that, sometimes they hover around because I'll give them some. All right, it's just what I choose to do. They're my dogs. I'm allowed to do whatever I want within reason. But if Opie puts himself in prime position to get the food, Pixel will target him. She'll come over and grab him and and she'll start trying trying to beat him into position. The way I solve that is, A, I correct her for it. Okay, so she actually gets punishment for doing it. Mm. But the way I resolve the issue is if-, if And what food, does that punishment look like? Explain that. It can be verbal at times. Yeah. It's enough. It works. So my philosophy on training, if, if anyone's cared to listen throughout the podcast or even when they've done the courses with me, is use what works. Yeah. And that's all that you need to do. So usually it's just, you know, I'll bang my hands together or make a sharp noise and that stops it. Like she actually feels that's punishment yeah. and, it, and it gets the desired response or it might need mean that it needs some form of correction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whatever that may be or whatever tool that you're using at the time. But for me, that's working. Mm-hmm. So she will back off and she'll back down when that happens. And, you know, I can see that she looks remorseful even when I'm doing it. She's thinking, fuck, I'm in trouble. However, The way that I've resolved that situation and it seems to work is if she gets the morsel of whatever's happening first. If I give it to her first and then to him, she doesn't have a problem with it Mm -hmm. and it resolves the issue. So in that way you would say she's dominant over him in that moment, in that context. With toys, food, anything like that, she's dominant over him. Yeah. And he allows it to happen to a certain degree. And I'm not saying this is a sexist thing, so don't read anything into it. But most good male dogs, even though they're stronger, they will allow the female to exhibit that kind of behavior, whereas some will fight back. Like if he's getting hurt, he will fight back and he'll give it to her. So the ritualized conversation that's happening is food's available from you. You're, yep. That's the resource. Yes. Opie wants it. Yep. Pixel says to him via aggression, mm. 
I want that more than you and I'm prepared to fight over it. Yep. She gives him a little towel up. He goes, oh, you know what? I, I don't want it that much. And then she takes prime position and you avoid that by ever putting her in a position where you show her that that actually aggression to him is not necessary because I exactly. acknowledge that you're the dominant one yes. in this circumstance, in this yep. environment, and I will therefore give it to you first and then I'll give it to him and that avoids the problem. Right. I don't create or allow that process to prolong by trying to, to equalize them because that's yep. never going to exist in her mind. Which is, that's where people go wrong. That's they right. Go, they get it wrong. And and well, I think we've discussed this ad yep. nauseum on the show, but yes. people always favor the, the weaker dog. That's and right. That, like that creates a bigger problem because then the stronger dog is like, Hey, well, obviously I need to do more of what I'm doing here. Yeah. And weaker dog maybe is not the right term, but it's the dog that is getting beaten up. Mm. We, we think, Oh, well you're the victim. Right. So therefore I'll give you compensation for your being, for being the victim. Yeah. And you know, that's fine. Except that then the other dog goes, hang on. Like the reason I was doing that is because I felt more entitled to the resource uh, and clearly I am because I am willing to fight over it, mm. but you've given it to him anyway. Therefore, I will need to try harder doing what I was doing anyway, which yep. is beating him up. And that's how big dog fights happen in the house. Right. So what all that I want to convey to her is there's no need for that. Yes. Okay. So I don't, I don't tolerate, nor do I allow that. And there's no need for it because it's not going to happen anyway. Yeah. So normally, unless it's something that is higher, higher value, it used to be over mango. Narelle, mango. Yeah. Look, they love mango. So I get, yeah, um, right. Narelle buys me that frozen mango and I, instead of eating sugary things, I eat that as, even though it converts to a sugar, but it's still a, a fruit. So I eat, she buys the frozen mango. I defrost it and I eat that because I like mango at night. So the dogs always get a little bit each. And it used to be over that, but now it's not over that anymore. So Opie, he stands at the threshold of the kitchen and Pixel comes at my feet and I give her a bit. And then once she's had her bit, he comes over and I give him his bit. And they're okay with that. But when it's ribs, different story. Right. Opie loses his mind and he thinks, oh, now I can come over the threshold. Yeah. And that's where she looks at him. Like she'll tilt her head around and she'll look at him and – all I need to do now is when I can see that, you know, the behavior starting to manifest, I'll just say, ah, and then she'll switch back and go, oh, now I remember. Right. Okay. So I just remind her, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to give it to him first. Even though he's standing there, he's anticipating this is coming. It's high value. So then what I do is I get, I reward her first. She's satisfied. And then I give it to him mm -hmm. and then they can share equally. Mm -hmm. But just every now and then that little relationship breaks down. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, it's just one of those things that just is, there's a lot of intensity around it. And this is where aggression can be so difficult because just when you think you've got a handle on it, it reemerges. Yeah. And generally it's around something that both dogs feel that, you know, there's a reason to go to war over. Yeah. And people do the same sort of thing. You know, I mean, look at dog trainers. We tear each other apart on such a regular basis over a value that we could all equally share and all profit and benefit from. Exactly. It's just craziness. Yeah. Mm. I think relationships is very fascinating to me when you look at um, mm. people who really know what they're looking at in their dogs and they manage like that tense what could be a really dangerous situation, they manage to keep it under control by acknowledging it. And it, it's people, like a lot of people would then say about that sort of thing, well, you're reinforcing the dominance. And you go, yeah, like that's that's what's avoiding the conflict, mm. right? Like I'm showing I'm showing her you've presented enough. That's enough. You, that's, you've, you're getting it first and he's getting it second. And 
that overwhelmingly works. It's only a problem when they're too tightly matched and neither is like, it's fine for yeah. him because he goes, yeah, okay, I get it. And maybe the only reason he even pushes it is because he's a bit of a doofus and he's like, ah, right? yeah, he's like, Brick Tanahan. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas say in my home, Valerie does the same thing to Remy yep. and he really respects her boundaries in mm. the house. Like really like gives her a wide berth whenever there's something that she wants. Yep. Right. And I've never even seen the big fight. Whatever happened between them happened at such a, a level that it wasn't even noticeable to me. Mm. Or maybe I wasn't present, didn't, you know, whatever, but like he really respects her boundaries. She's dominant over him in certain circumstances under certain conditions. Yes. And he, he respects and appreciates that. And any time that I have ever mistakenly messed with that relationship, it causes a big problem. Mm. It causes a big problem. And she bashes him up. It, well, like not bashes him up, but takes it out on him, right? Like shows him like, hey, you're not entitled to that. And it's usually just affection from me. Like I have to be careful. Like if she's sitting on the couch with me, he's not allowed to try and come in for a pat. He has yep. to wait for his turn. And she'll give him a turn, mm. but it can't be at the same time. Yeah. And this has to happen with dogs sometimes. They have to understand through a skirmish on what the boundaries are. You know, yeah. I mean, there's no democracy in dog packs. Yeah. Well, there is, but it's created through violence. Yeah. But the problem becomes when they are too tightly matched, when yes. both dogs go. Or when willing. humans intervene when, yeah. when they need not. And I understand why people feel like they so need I mean, to. But I mean, that system that we've just discussed won't work. With two equally matched dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Where one believes there's still enough fight in yeah. me to go back for more. If one dog says, the other dog, hey, I'm prepared to fight over this. He says, I was hoping you would say that. Yeah. <laughs> now, near two dogs that can't live together. That's or they have to be yes. very tightly managed. Yep. We definitely right? agree on that. Yeah. Mm. Big time. Yes. Hey, been a while. Yeah. It was a good discussion. I like the Q&A episodes. Yeah. I like them. There's a heap more questions here. Maybe we can do this again another time. I like them too because it gives us a good time to banter backwards and forwards with each other. Mm. Yeah. All right. I'm going to wrap it up. Yeah. That's it, guys. you got to do the sales pitch one after we've just worked with Matt. Oh, yeah. 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 That's it, guys, for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Write a comment explaining specifically what it is that you like about Yeah, even show. about this episode too. Yeah. What Tell was us about it? it in the Canine Paradigm discussion group. What was it on this one? Mm. Is it the one where Pat called the dog handler Beryl for no reason? <laughs> <laughs> the male dog handler that he was fictionally picturing in his mind. Beryl, yeah. is that what you liked? Yep. Yeah, you might have. Mm. Um, anyway, do that. Uh, if you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. Oh, issue with Patreon. So the last live that I did yes. through Crowdcast didn't mm. record, and it was a problem at their end. I spoke to support at Crowdcast. Yeah, I saw that um, email. Got the, we got the email yep. back from yep. them saying that there were three days there where their system wasn't recording. Yep. Very, very sorry, but it's gone. Yep. Uh, so I'll have to do that again. Sorry, mm. let me find a time and I'll do that again. Yep. It won't be the same. It'll be similar, mm. uh, but I will do it again, I promise. Yeah, that was, that's a shame when you go through all that effort. And, and it was a pain because- it happens, Because people ask questions live, and so I won't be able to- re It'll be yeah. a different version of the same thing it won't be the same but mm. i'll answer the questions again yep and for people that were there you get it twice yep all right and if you want another way to support the show is teespring get mm. some cool gear um someone said they're fangirling that. the other day and they yeah. had their the their, new the mind blown one yeah the new one with on their red it looked their, good yeah it looked re looked great and they had their old dog sitting next to it yeah i like it on red yeah uh, you know what we got to do at one stage talk about that 
Pitbull video that just surfaced yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. That's a long one. Well, I think. Uh, that's actually been around a fair while. I mm. saw that months ago. I, uh, that's the first time I saw that and just- It's intense, right? Yeah, it's, I thought I was going to see it. Oh, get my, killed I was actually video. on the edge of my seat thinking, oh, this is terrible. Like yeah. terrible. And I'm bracing myself for something terrible to happen. Actually, that almost pushed me into an anxiety attack. Yeah. I was full body tense yeah. the first time yes. I watched that. Yeah. Give me your, your elevator pitch on what you think that was. How did that come to be? Because there's a million different theories there's, online. There's another dog in the room looks like it's eating and it looks like that dog is in conflict with that dog eating. Maybe, I don't know, this is a snapshot view, but it looks that's like- That's problem. No one will ever know. That's right. And because nobody was, you know, and this is why I don't do aggression on phone consults because it's so fucking difficult and yeah. then people get, and that ends up happening. Yeah. That's the result. And that's why I, you know, like I know I cop flack over this and people say, I really wish you would, but that's what happens. And that's why, yeah, you know, you that tell, yeah, you can't tell. But to me, it looked like the dog, there was a dog eating in the corner and, you know, from the very, very brief snapshot that I've had, maybe that dog, those two dogs are in conflict with each other and that dog is taking out and redirecting its aggression towards that girl and you can see like an elevation of aggression happening and that dog doesn't know how to deal with its aggression. Yeah. Maybe. But that's, you know. Terrifying. Terrifying. Absolutely. That's the worst case scenario. So the first time I saw that, I've seen a lot of sort of hypothesis and then people saying, oh, I know this and that and whatever. Like it was everywhere for a little while. Mm. The first time I saw it, the way that the dog does eventually settle and the way it allows her to pat it during that display of aggression made me think that it was, could be some sort of neurological thing. Like it, it almost appeared the first time I watched it that it was having some kind of seizure. I was so- It's conf- bizarre, isn't it's it? It's so strange, mate. Mm. That it was so intense, but then not to bite her when she tried to pat it. Yeah. Well, did pat it and did calm it down. She did appease it. In that moment. Yeah, when she tried to push it, you can see the intensity lift and the dog like advances on her. Like, Yeah, but then when she calms down and pats it, Mm. it does as well. Well, that's the only way to deal with that situation. I mean, in in that sort of situation, it's either take a bite or- That was going to be a hell of a bite. Oh, See the neck on that dog? Oh, mate, that was- It was just horrific. I mean, it's happened to me once with a Roddy that I got. Now, I'll go into the weeds of this in another episode. But a similar thing happened to me when I rescued a Roddy and I was on my own and, and something like that happened. And it was terrifying. And the the way I dealt with it was the only way that I think I could deal with it at the time. But when I saw that, I relived that moment, which is a terrible moment in my mind still. And it and it pulled all that back. That's why I was feeling so anxious when I saw that. And I'm, I'm sitting there clutching my head thinking, holy shit, Yeah, you know, waiting for that dog to grab that poor kid by the face or something like that. It was just terrible. Yeah. Terrible. The reason I say like I, with the weight of evidence that we have, I don't think that it was like a neurological problem, but it looked to me like that at, when I first saw it because I have seen a military working dog overheat mm. and was similar. Like yep. it, it knew it was dying and didn't understand why and was – it was going to fucking kill anybody. Yeah. And it could, it didn't bite anybody, but it was like, it was just pure aggression flowing out of this dog because yep. he knows I turn off pain via aggression and I don't understand why I'm in so much pain. Yeah. I've right? seen a, a dog hit by a car do something very similar. Yeah. A, and normally a very passive dog. Yeah. Mm. And so I was thinking maybe this dog's having some kind of seizure and can't figure out what's actually happening could in be. its body. Could well be. Because- it just looks at me when she puts her hand over the dog and pats it on the back. I was like, you that's, that's the bite where you go to like 
calm the give it calming signal that's that's where it's going to get you mm. you can't pat a dog like that and then it doesn't bite i was like whoa yeah that uh, it also could be punishment related that the original owner of the dog has punished the dog in a food combat situation or then you have no idea we have oh, no do, idea yeah, from that just, snapshot it, it's terrifying it's, it is it really is and yeah the one thing is is that you know like you're getting i think it went for a 40 seconds or something like that. And I mean, it's such a short time to look at it. And this is why people, you know, when I talk about people, I'm not saying when I see people dealing with and trying to diagnose aggression and they're doing it on a whim, this is why I say to people, you really, really need to have your shit squared away when you're doing this. I think when people think of aggression, they don't think of that shit though. But that's that's what it is a lot of times. Yeah, but that's... That's, that's the, high level. That's, yeah, that's that's the devil that's incarnate. The pointy end of the spear. It right really there, is. Yeah, yep. that I was thinking, fucking hell. I'm glad I have nothing to do with this. Oh. I'm glad I'm not in that room. Yeah, like I'm very curious to know how it came to be. But god damn, that's some terrifying shit. There's not a lot of scenarios where you wouldn't recommend to put that dog down. But again, you'd still need to know. You just don't know. You, you just, just don't, don't know, know how it came to be. Yeah. Like they might have been kicking it in the nuts and it that's just turned right. around and said, that's "Fuck right. you, I'm not having that." Like we have no, we have nothing to. It's just happening. We have no idea how we got to that point. Mm. It's fucking terrifying. It was. Before we just officially wrap up, a friend of mine years ago used to have this Rottweiler that he brought off another colleague of mine. And he had young children. And if you heard the way this dog's growled and snarled, you would think that this dog is incredibly dangerous and irresponsible to have him. But this was just how this dog communicated. Yeah. He was just like a snarly dog and yeah. he had no, I mean, he did bite work and everything, but when he was playing with the kids and he was running around the house with them, he would growl like a werewolf. And you'd think to yourself, my God, this is ridiculous. Like where I'm going to watch children being mauled here. Never put a paw or a tooth on them in the entire time that they had them together. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. I just thought oh. mm. <laughs> a little while ago, Rip has a trundle bed, right? Like a, you know, bed under the bed. Yep. And it is always pulled out sort of a foot and Remy sleeps on that. Mm. He came into my room one day recently and he goes, Dad, Remy growled at me. I was like, what? Like, I can't believe it. He goes, yeah, he's growling at me right now. I'm like, you're in here. <laughs> he's snoring. <laughs> <laughs> he's curled in a ball. Snoring. He's curled in a ball and he's got his head tucked at like a weird angle. It must have been pinching his airway. Yep. And he's full-blown snoring. It's like, he's growling. <laughs> I was like, mate, <laughs> it's not growling. You and that dog is not growling at you. But it was like my heart stopped when he said yeah. Remy growled at me. And it's always like a concern. He sleeps like, you know, he has free reign of the house and that's where he chooses to sleep. And, yep. and he's not a dog. You know, I've had dangerous dogs in the past and mm. I've never allowed them that freedom. But then when, when he said Remy growled at me, my heart skipped a beat. I was like, holy shit. Like what level of, what circumstance could ever have possibly brought that on? I'm actually impressed by Rip's knowledge that he identified that that noise was uncharacteristic of the dog and reported it to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, and he's snuck actually, out of the room. He's like, an intelligent little kid, isn't he? Like snuck out of the room. Yeah. So like to avoid the situation. And then the poor dog's just like hardcore racked out being yeah. accused of growling at a kid. <laughs> You and Jane have done a good job with that little fella. Oh, we try. Yeah. He's cool. He gets his birthday tomorrow. Oh, happy birthday, Ripster. Turns five. Yeah. Yeah, So by the time you guys are hearing this, he's he's five now. Yep. Crazy. Time flies. Isn't it? He wasn't even born when I first met you. True. Mm. That's right. Yeah, the dog stayed here when he was born. Yep. Uh, you know, I was talking to oh someone in the NDTF the other day about uh, Valerie's false pregnancy. Uh, we've never spoken about that on here. Actually. She was so false pregnant. We should talk about that one day. We will. But we've got to wrap up because yeah. I have to go. All right. All right. That's it.
Yes. We already did it all. We did the wrap up. But get in contact with us part. Just do that. Just, yeah. just shoot us a message, whatever. Yeah. Info at the canineparadigm.com. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>